Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. I would like to alert you to a new video that we posted last night. We're so excited about it. It's on JewInTheCity.com right now. Um, it is a cover in collaboration with the Maccabees of The Sound of Silence. Um, I had a realization that The Sound of Silence in 2017 is family sitting around tapping on their devices, ignoring each other around dinner tables, around living room settings, couples not engaging with each other because they are just busy staring at that device and ignoring one another. And we have the antidote to the sound of silence. I'm not going to give it away now. You have to watch the video to see. Um, but I would uh, suggest you run over to jointhecity.com and see what we've done with it. Um, the responses that we've gotten so far are things like, wow, I got chills watching it. We hope you'll feel the same way. Um, today, we're very excited to speak to a incredible chef, uh, Joshua Mason. He's the executive chef at Nova Wine and Grill in Teaneck. He uh, had his start first in Mike's Bistro um, in Manhattan, where my husband and I were fans. And what I love about Josh and his cooking is that you know all the stereotypes that I grew up with about kosher food, really just associating kosher food with the stuff that you see sort of standard in the kosher aisle in stores, like the borscht and like the disgusting jarred gefilte fish and tam-tams, just sort of that whole genre of very uh, specifically Jewish and really not the best quality, very processed. So what Josh has been up to in these last many years of his cooking career is just taking kosher to a whole new level, um, you know, fresh ingredients, farm to table, um, just really experimenting with new techniques, sous vide and, you know, these powerful blenders that make your, you know, pureed soup super creamy, even though they use a non-dairy creamer. Anyway, um, we are so excited for Josh to join us today. Good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us, Josh. My pleasure, Allison. It's great to be here. So, as I said, Nobo is one of my favorite restaurants. Um, uh, I followed you or we started, uh, you know, eating your food back at Mike's Bistro many years ago. Um, and one of my fondest memories of you is when you had some truffle oil that was sort of a new kosher product that you showed us had just come in and you were sort of drizzling it on all of uh, the customers' food, which um, we really saw that you had a real passion for making great kosher food. So when when you came uh, to Novo, that was sort of an exciting uh, upgrade in, in terms of that restaurant that we were we could follow you there as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, two parts of yourself? On one hand, your Jewish background growing up and sort of your journey to observance, and then on the other hand, uh, how you got into food, how you, you know, how this journey of, uh, you know, becoming a chef and you know, the love of making great food started. Okay. So uh, I think my, my relationship with food might have started... Uh, a little bit before my relationship with Judaism. Okay, so um, go in that direction. But uh, grow, growing up, I wasn't uh, wasn't the best student, a fan of really going to school. Um, so uh, you know, I would complain of a sore throat or a bellyache or whatever it took to stay home, and then I would uh, open the TV guide and sort of line up all the, the cooking shows. In addition to Bob Ross, I used to oil paint a time, so I loved Bob Ross, and um, I remember seeing Emeril Lagasse on Great Chefs of New Orleans when he was uh, the chef of Commander's Palace, oh, it's going back a long time ago already, um, maybe about 30 years ago, <laughs> to be honest with you, 
Um, but uh, I loved, uh, you know, I, w- I was sort of uh, enamored with, with cooking from a young age. Uh, we used to, you know, I didn't grow up using kosher, and we used to frequent this local Chinese takeout place. And, um, you know, I had the open kitchen, the counter service, and uh, the lady there, Annie, she actually passed away a few years ago. She used to do a lot of work in the community, going to school, talking about Chinese food, so she would let me in the kitchen. I'd watch the guys flip the locks, you know, with all the flames shooting out everywhere, and it was just about the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Hmm. Um, So I started bugging my mom to let me cook stuff in the kitchen, um, which she was not thrilled about because I would wreck the place. But by the time I had moved out uh, to go to college, I had learned how to cook without it ever looking or, or snub like anyone had ever cooked in the kitchen. Not that my mom was a tyrant. Just in case she listens to this, I don't want her to be upset. She just, uh, you know, obviously wanted to keep things in order and, you know, having uh, a preteen and a tween cooking in the kitchen isn't really conducive to that. So, um, But, uh, you know, it was very much just a, a hobby, among other hobbies, sort of a, you know, a chronic. Um, and uh, I... Um, Graduated high school, I was 17, and I matriculated at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I was going to study political science, thinking that I was going to go to law school and join a think tank or get involved in party politics or something like that, and uh, that didn't really pan out that way. UMass was not uh, a really good environment for a young, impressionable young man like myself, so uh, I ended up leaving UMass after about a year and a quarter, um, and there wasn't much doing, so I, I, uh, my father and I belonged to a rifle and pistol club in Tenafly, New Jersey, and one of the, uh, the guys there, you know, mentioned that he had just opened up a cafeteria, a corporate cafeteria in the AT&T building in Paramus, New Jersey, and that they were looking for a dishwasher, so uh, I took the job, and, uh, that was my first professional restaurant experience. I think it was 1998, if I remember correctly. So, okay, so you went from dishwashing to dish making. So, what what was the space in between? How long until you said right. I could be cooking the food on these plates? Right. So now, now uh, you know we, we've uh, we fast forwarded to about what well, was early uh, late 1998. No, early 1999. Um, my parents were concerned that I wouldn't uh, continue my, you know, higher education. So uh, at about the same time, you know, not having much of a social life because all my friends were away at school, uh, I had reconnected with a young rabbi who I had met at a Sunday program in, uh, um, you know, sort of out of a little bit of Jewish guilt at having raised us in a reform synagogue, which was a compromise between her and my dad, um, because he was a bit of an agnostic, uh, he, um, uh, I met this young rabbi at that school that I went to all throughout high school. Because um, mm-hmm. all my friends were away at college, and and I went, he he was holding a shear in his uh, in his apartment on Tuesday nights. Um, so I went. Where did you grow up? And then I grew up in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Okay. He was in Englewood at the time. Rabbi mm-hmm. Eli Allen. He since made uh, Aliyah last year. Sure. Left me all alone. 
but <laughs> but it's for the best. He's doing well over there, and um, we uh, so I went to Shiram, and then I came for a Shabbos, and then another Shabbos, and, and as I like to tell the story, then then I went to the Wayus farm sale and bought like five hundred olive arms. So once I was financially invested, I think, um, and uh, the um, you know at the same time they wanted me to at least go to community college, and I opted to pay because there were more Orthodox Jews there, and I thought it would be a better environment for that. So I um, did pretty poorly at Rockland Community College, and, and about uh, three years later, yeah, I was about 21, my parents uh, were pretty much ready to kick me out of the house. You know, they were very happy that I became from, but they wanted to know what else I was doing with my life. So I decided uh, the only jobs that I had had I, in the interim I had worked uh, as mishkiach and cook and dishwasher and just about everything at a, um, a cafeteria, a, a cafe rather in the Washington, the wine Washington Township, New Jersey um, I'd worked so hard there actually that I had shingles oh wow um, and actually yeah when I, as a freshman at UMass I had passed a kidney stone because I had abused the alcohol diet so I've had a lot of the old people afflictions uh, at a very young age. So, um, right. So, uh, after I recovered, you know, shingles aside, I really did enjoy the work. Um, so I decided I would go to culinary school and Johnson and Wales university had a schedule and, and, and a curriculum that was just better for somebody keeping kosher. So I decided to go to Johnson and Wales university, um, in Providence, Rhode Island. And, uh, I um, finagled my way into turning a four-year program into a three-and-a-half-year program because this, uh, this young lady that I was seeing at the time was getting very anxious that I wasn't moving back and uh, getting married to her. So I um, found a job in Manhattan. Uh, it's a funny story up at Mike's Bistro because they were, I had interviewed on the phone with two Mikes. Uh, one was Mike mm-hmm. from Park East Grill. And one was Mike from Mike's Bistro. And I got a call back from a guy who said, Hey, it's, uh, it's Mike. Uh, would you like to come down and do a trail? Which is, you know, when you go down and follow the chef around for a day so he could see if you're worth the trouble. Uh, and not knowing which Mike it was and not wanting to be rude and say, I'm sorry, which Mike is this? I said, uh, Can you remind me uh, what, uh, what street corner you're on, 72nd Street? <laughs> um, yeah, what street corner you're on? And he had, he said, uh, 72nd and Broadway. I'm like, right, right, okay. Uh, so I knew which Mike. And uh, that's how I ended up at Mike's Bistro for mm. six happy years and really cut my teeth there. Um, you know, uh, every time we were down an employee or somebody quit or got fired or whatever the case may be, I went to the vacuum and took the opportunity to build my own skill sets, so it was a very, uh, it was a very, uh, worthwhile, um, sojourn there, and, uh, and, uh, that, you know, like I said, at, at the end of six years, uh, I started to think about what my next steps were, and, um, I wasn't, there wasn't much opportunity to grow at Mike's, and I was given an opportunity to be an executive chef. Uh, in New Jersey, which at the time seemed like a tremendous risk for me because, you know, Teaneck, New Jersey was not the, uh, 
you know, the restaurant, the, the kosher restaurant hot hot spot hotbed that it is now. So um, I decided uh, after, you know, a lot of persuasion from the, the gentleman who had Noble Wine and Grill at the time that I would give it a shot. And uh, I guess the rest is history. So, okay, so tell us about, um, I guess, maybe what what is your personal style in cooking? What makes great cooking? I mean, you came to the restaurant, and we were there through the various, mm. uh, you know, sort of stages of this restaurant. Um, the mm. bread automatically, when you uh, came there, became a better bread. And for me, that's sort of like the first point of like, are they are they noticing the bread? Like, they should care about the bread, even though it's not a moneymaker. They should sort of take care of me as a customer in terms of the bread, but... What did you bring to Nobo? Kind of what would you say is your personal style? Right. So, um, Nobo was not in the best place when I arrived. Um, I, uh, after the first two days of working there, um, I actually told everyone, please don't come eat there. Uh, uh, it, you know, it, it had been suffering from from a real lack of leadership from the chef at the time, um, and uh, you know, we, I really put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, in that first year. Uh, I think, let's see, yeah, um, about two months after I started, my father passed away, and uh, I had to. Uh, it's Shiva and, and deal with all that and the whole time I'm, you know, sitting in my brother's house and, you know, obviously dealing with the trauma of losing a parent at such a young age for my father and for myself. I, um, you know, and, and in addition, kind of like biting my fingernails, wondering what the heck was going on while I was gone. Uh, so that was fun. That was a growing experience. Um, but, uh, in the beginning, you know, I was just trying to confront. It was the summer, and even even a bad kosher restaurant is busy in the summer. At least back then. I mean, in the last five years, there's been tremendous growth in the market. But uh, at the time, uh, Nobo was really, you know, the only restaurant of its kind in Teaneck, at least. Um, uh, so it was very busy. Um, we were very understaffed, and uh, it was a struggle. Um, but uh, my, if I if I had to de- to describe my my personal style, it's, it's not so much a style as kind of a an ethos, a philosophy of of, of evidence based cooking, uh, meaning whatever whatever we're making, uh, we we come up with a uh, a concept. You know, we want to make this, or we want to make that. Have some sort of inspiration the inception of the idea. And we, we have to figure out how we're going to make it and what ingredients are going to, you know, what components are going to be in the dish. But whatever we do, however we cook it, however we put it together, um, there has to be, you know, real evidence for why we're doing it that way, not just because, oh, that's the way Stoffier did it or, you know, uh, somebody online says to do it this way or some celebrity chef says to do it that way. Uh, you'd, you'd be surprised at how much uh, diseconomy there is, even in the, the best kitchens, where um, 
there are policies and, and procedures in place which, you know, waste time and waste resources, and I just really don't like to do that. Um, so, you know, from sort of the, the business of food standpoint, that that's that's where we, uh, you know, that's how I look at things. But from an artistic standpoint, from a creative standpoint, um, you know, dishes have to, uh, have to tell a story in a certain way. They have to be provocative or evocative, um, uh, you know, in the sense that maybe it's a dish that, uh, that you know, has a profound cultural reference. Um, maybe it's something that's very reflective of the season. Maybe it's something that's reflective of the, the, the animal, the, the protein that we're using and, and where it lived and, how, you know, what it ate, uh, where that's, you know, possible to do. Um, and uh, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll put together a whole, a whole dish on paper and then you sit down and you start crossing things out. Okay, we don't need this and we don't need that and that's too much. And um, sometimes we find out that operationally it's just not, it's not feasible to execute it quickly and, um, and consistently. So we have to rethink it in a way that, that not way, because as you know, uh, consistency is probably the most important thing uh, in, in success in a restaurant. You could be, you could be consistently awful, and people will show up just to see how awful you actually are. And you could be consistently great and consistently, you know, you really don't want to be consistently mediocre, but more um, bad. But uh, nonetheless, the, the consistency is is key because. That's what gets people to, to come back. That's what gets uh, what gets good reviews, and ultimately what makes money. Um, and if we don't make money, then we don't have a restaurant. So everything uh, eventually has to get way to economics. But in the meantime, um, that's you know the dishes have to have a certain amount of integrity, uh, and I think that's why we organize the menu the way we do. We have the, sort of the rest of the menu, and then we have a a steak menu because steak, you know, a big hunk of beef, at least for the time being, is what draws our clientele in um, in terms of the masses. But uh, the rest of the menu really reflects the, you know, my identity as a cook, at least through the lens of uh, of Nobo and um, and through uh, you know through the resources I have here through you know, through my. Uh, through, uh, you know, through through what I have available and how I can make it happen here. Every every restaurant, every operating environment is different, and that sort of affects the product. So this is, you know, this isn't necessarily Josh's style. It's Josh's style at Novo. Got it. Um, I know you have to get going soon. I'm wondering if I can ask you one last question. Maybe it's a big question, but maybe uh, I'll regal Achas if you can answer it. What is the best news about kosher food happening nowadays? What are the challenges we're left with? Can you kind of give us sort of trends of the great news and, you know, sum up kind of the biggest things we have to go against? Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a few minutes more because, you know, I think this is important to talk about. I think there are, uh, there, there are a lot of really good things happening, um, uh, but I think that it's, um, you know, it, it can sometimes be a double-edged sword. Um, you know, there, there are, there's really profound changes, not only, um, you know, on the supply side in terms of restaurants and, and kosher food service and operators, 
um, but also on the on the part of you know of our clients of our of our um, of our public. They uh, you know owners are starting to uh, well. Let me take a step back. I I, I think um, the inception is, is similar for you know owners and for customers alike. Um, we've all been influenced by food need become a tremendous industry. Um, it's a tremendous industry, and uh, um, you know it's a very it's a very sensationalized kind of media. Um, I'm sure you've heard of you know the the uh, the term food porn, um, and and it, it you know it's very apropos because um, like I said, it's a double edged sword. On the one hand. People want to try new things, and their their horizons have been broadened, and and they're more adventurous because you know, as seen on TV, I want to try that. At the same time, um, it, it's media, and it's sensationalized, and it's a certain kind of consumption, and, and it raises expectations to the point where, or we can't always manage those expectations. We can't, you know, um, food doesn't actually make people react that way in real life all the time, and. Uh, and, and we sort of have to deal with that, um, you know, like something that I feel that we make is truly excellent, but because the person eating it doesn't have an out-of-body out of body experience, <laughs> somehow they feel that it's lacking. And unfortunately, that tends to be blamed on, you know, the, the, there's a, sort of a cop-out, oh, well, it's kosher food. Really, it mm-hmm. doesn't have anything to do necessarily with it being kosher. And there, mm-hmm. you know, I won't, I won't sit here and cry about uh, the unique... Uh, profit and loss of a kosher restaurant as opposed to a non-kosher restaurant, but that does have something to do with it. It does weigh, weigh on that, um, but at a place like Nobo, where we try to use the best resources and really put our backs into it, um, we can turn around and charge for it. People that are mm-hmm. you know, selling food at a lower check average, a lower price point, um, possibly with smaller margins, um, they, they have uh, a more difficult time doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there could be great restaurants that don't make it uh, because of that, because, you know, it's difficult to manage those expectations. But by and large, I think, I think the news is positive because there's a lot of competition. And uh, in the past, whereas kosher restaurants may have been playing to a captive audience, which might be true in minor markets, but certainly not in the New York metropolitan area, or, um, you know, greater Miami, uh, Greater Los Angeles, uh, certainly not Israel. It, it's just not the case. It's not a captive audience. There's plenty of competition. A lot of Ashkafas, you know, are no longer involved in adjudicating Sugas rule, um, you know, in terms of uh, protecting people's business territory. So, really, it's wide open. And, um, you know, uh, may the best man win, I, I suppose you could say, with the help of heaven. But, um, but really, uh, um, businesses have to perform, and you see some of the old businesses reinvesting and trying to upgrade, mm-hmm. um, and you see new businesses investing, you know, in their in their startups and you know capitalizing in a way that kosher restaurants hadn't in the past in terms of improving their, their tour and offering a wider, wider variety of products and cooking methods and um, a more advanced service system and more luxurious, uh, um, you know, experience. Um, so I think all of that is great, uh, and, and certainly a rising tide lifts all boats. I think um, my, my brother says this, he quotes some corporate guru, Tom Peters or something like that, but uh, you know, the, 
only at the top. It's the bottom that's always cloudy. Mm-hmm. And I think right now, uh, the top is a little more crowded than it used to be. So to mm-hmm. me, that, that's very exciting because, you know, it, it, it builds well for, for everyone involved because my suppliers, you know, are feeling that demand for higher quality product. Um, the, the, the consumer, little by little, not so much, but little by little is willing to pay for that increase in quality. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, you know, it, it makes it worth it for me to diversify myself and perhaps uh, get involved in other businesses, other market segments, and, and uh, you know, try to grow my own empire. Um, whereas... Uh, Whereas in the past, it, it, you know, it might not have been worth it because, hey, why should I open a casual restaurant? The margins are small. You have to do a tremendous volume. Um, it's a very rough crowd, but and and I don't want to make food that I don't want to make. I don't want to. I don't want to open, let's say, a traditional ramen restaurant and have to serve chicken, you know, regular chicken noodle soup because well, it's a kosher restaurant, and I have to have a kids menu and well, it's a kosher restaurant. A lot of kids are going to come eat. Like, I don't have to have that attachment anymore. So. No, you have to serve sushi if it's kosher restaurant. Or sushi. Exactly. Which we don't do at Novo as a rule. I won't allow it. I never will. If I want to get into the sushi business, I'm going to own a sushi restaurant. And you're going to be sure that it will be damn good sushi. But, uh, um, yeah, I don't don't know if I'm rambling here. But uh, I I remain optimistic. Do you, do you think that, I mean, I get but, obviously, uh, yeah. I get that, that the food industry, because there's so much media now, first television, you know, food cooking programs, and then social media taking it to a whole other level. But I'm wondering, has the Balchuva movement influenced the sort of upgrade in kosher cooking? It's got to be that people like you that knew how other things tasted back in the day that can now bring these things, bring higher quality. Like as a Balchuva myself, I'd been to restaurants with FFBs that they said it was great, and I'm like, no, it's not. Like, what were you thinking? And But now I feel like there's more places that are just great for anyone to go to, and I feel like that's got to be a partially Balchuva influence. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's Balchuva should take less for granted, perhaps. I mean, I don't want to speak for every BT out there. I, I, I certainly, you know, I have my own brand. You have your own brand. Uh, um but I, I don't think that we take as many things for granted, perhaps. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if it's, you know, it's not like I grew up eating, you know, in super fine dining restaurants and used to restaurants and you know, kind of restaurants. That's just not, uh, that wasn't my experience growing up. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, I grew up eating in restaurants um and experiencing uh, a diversity of flavors, um, you know, because I could avail myself of the ethnic foods, you know, in the diverse communities that I grew up, I was able to avail myself by eating in my friends' houses. And, you know, I, I ate the kids' grandmother's kimchi that she made by hand, but they always had in the fridge. And, uh, you know, my mouth was on fire for the next two days. And uh, I happened to have a very profound childhood reference for, for Korean food. Uh, and I grew up eating like American food, Jewish food, and Korean food, a little bit of Greek. Um, but that that means you know, a lot of Chinese takeout. But you know, it's just uh, I don't think anyone goes up without eating a lot of Chinese takeout. So uh, right. that so that being said, um, 
I think it's it's just that we don't take things for granted. Um, that you know we're the same, just the same as you know a from from birth person might be might be jaded about their Judaism, and the Bal Shuva is going to say no. That I'm not going to say well this is the way it is. This is what the Olam does. This is the way it is in the Velt. You have to do this. But you know, I think that perhaps uh, you know Bal Shuva brought that to the to the conversation with kosher food. Just saying, uh, you know, it's not like I'm looking for, uh, for, uh, you know, some hot cuisine burger on a, you know, a handmade uh, bun with truffles and and wagyu beef. I just think, man, can I just get a decent burger? Right. And they know at least what decent is. Josh, I'm afraid that we're um, out of time, but we we definitely want to hear more about your budding food empire and certainly about casual restaurants <laughs> and anything else that uh, that might come beyond Nobo. So we will have to talk to you again. Thank you so much for joining okay. us today, and thank you so much for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye bye.